welcome to So I've Been Told. I am your host, Adam Kramer. My guest on today's episode is C.J. Campbell. C.J. is the author of The Zen of Beer Trimming, Stories of Punk Rock, Poverty, and the Search for Peace. He is also one of the hosts of the Vultures Like Me podcast, and just an all-around great dude. So I hope you all enjoy the conversation that we had. Before we get to that, I just want to let you know, let's say you found a link to this episode on Facebook and you're on the Podbean page, I just want to let you know that you can find us on iTunes as well. I'm a part of a network called the Podcast of Pennsylvania, so if you look up Podcast of Pennsylvania on iTunes, you can find this episode in the feed right there. I'm not living in Pennsylvania anymore, but I'm really good friends with some of the people that run the Podcast of Pennsylvania Network, so they graciously allowed me to be a part of it, even though I live up here in the Great White North of Rochester, New York. Anyway, I'll talk to you after the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Hey, man. Dude, how's it going? Going okay. I've been spending most of the day writing and listening to a podcast, playing a little Skyrim, eating French Toast Crunch. Living the dream. Living the dream. <laughs> well, I listened to your podcast today. Uh, did you listen to the mini one or the, or the full episode? Well, I listened to the mini one today, and I listened. To, I've I've listened to both of them on the days they came out. Nice, thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I dig it. All right, so you wrote a book, and can you tell me a little about a bit about the book you wrote, or tell the audience a little bit about the book you wrote? Because I know about it. I read it. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, a memoir about a five-year period of my life, from about age 21 to about 26, called The Zen of Beard Trimming, Stories of Punk Rock, Poverty, and for Peace. Awesome, yeah, there were a lot, of, uh, a lot of references to punk rock, it's in the name. Most of the people I've been talking to have played in bands, so I'm excited to talk to somebody who not... You're, you're an author, it's not... Your main thing isn't playing in a band, and that's been most of my guests so far. So I like changing things up. H- have you ever... I, I know, I read, there was a part in your book where you're talking about doing some vocals in a band, so have you... Is that something that's been a part of your life? And Well, how did... How did I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I just, like, I'm coming in cold. I just, like, ate dinner and walked in my house and called you. Yeah, I... It's okay, I'm not judging you, whereas I have the palsy, you have the mouth palsy, so, you know, <laughs> Anyway, so, how does punk rock play a role in your story, and have you ever, what's your experience with playing in bands and going to shows, and, or have you played in bands, first of all, and, you know, just tell me a little about your, uh, about, a little bit about your background in that. Uh, well, I have played in bands, I can scream like nobody's business. And it's something that I miss a lot. So, I know I made a joke about the palsy earlier. I guess we should probably let the cat out of the bag and let people know that I have a mild form of cerebral palsy. And I'm a wheelchair user, so I've been born with a disability. So, I really kind of got into punk rock around the age of 15. And I started going to punk shows in my home city of Rockford, Illinois. And, uh... The first venue that I really fell in love with was a coffee shop called The Divine Cup, which was run by the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know if you're familiar with an old Christian spa band called The Insiders. I I very much am familiar with The Insiders. So the drummer from The Insiders ran that coffee shop. Okay, cool. And so I, I saw a lot of really great bands come up from there. And it was kind of the first place that I really felt like I belonged. And I had a really tough time my freshman year of high school. And after I started going to shows, people started noticing that I was wearing a black flag shirt all the time. And that's when, like, the older punk kids told people to stop making fun of me. <laughs> and from there, I eventually got into some bands, you know, nothing really to uh, brag about. Uh, I always had a really inherent business mind for music. So I was always really good about, like, getting shows and getting paid really well. But a lot of bands were really hesitant about bringing in a guy in a wheelchair into their band because they didn't want to be a gimmick band. Mm. And then also just the fact that I can't drive, like it was hard to get to practices and stuff like that. Yeah. So around the time that I was in pastoral school, or uh, some of your list- listeners might know the name Master's Commission, around the time that I ended high school and... Went into master's commission. I started booking shows, and that's been something that I've done on and off for years. And currently, I work for a record label called Independent Theater Records, and I'm a tour manager for a indie pop artist named James Rawson, who also co-hosts my podcast, The Vultures Like Me Podcast. Very cool. So, the bands that you were in, did you ever, you guys ever do any recordings? Is there any online presence for any of those projects? If there is, I don't really know about them. I was in, like, a band that went nowhere with my friend Jacoby called The Orphans, okay. um, which was just, like, a crazy thrash punk band, and we recorded off of, like, Windows Voice Recorder, and we hung a very old, like, uh, PC mic from his drop ceiling <laughs> to uh, pick up both guitar and vocals. And so there might be one or two of those still around. My bands were around before the age of YouTube, so I don't really think you're going to find any videos or anything. But I've been kind of toying around with the idea of, like, getting back into a hardcore band, you know, if anyone's looking for a nearly 30-year-old crippled guy to, uh, you know, do vocals. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I, was, I always ask because I don't know. I, I like love digging up old bands on the internet, and if if there would be a presence, I, I like to link the uh, you know just put a link to an old MySpace page or whatever in the show notes because I I like geeky stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I really wish there was because uh, usually when uh, people talk to me and like I let them know that I used to be in a hardcore band, they don't believe me. <laughs> It was like, no, you were. And I was like, yes, I was. I was really good at it. <laughs> One of the only things I'm good at, growing a beard and and screaming. <laughs> uh, so going to shows, I know you mentioned being in a wheelchair. L- let's talk about accessibility. Uh, what kind of issues have you run into with accessibility at, at shows and, and in venues and whatnot? Oh, man. Uh, I mean... Also, like, I I toured a lot, so I've seen a lot of venues, and 
they're never accessible. And like, man, there's been times where you know I I can't get into a venue that I'm playing at. Uh, there's been times where you know I pay to see a band and I can't even see the stage because there's no accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a real real heartbreaker of just the the scene overall and especially in the hardcore punk scene like you know a lot of people tout inclusivity and uh, often uh, you know people with accessibility needs often get left out of that conversation often and that's just kind of across the board disability is I like to say is kind of the last true front of, of the social justice movement because it never gets put in the same conversation as LGBT issues or race issues or uh, feminism. And I'm not downplaying that any of those are important. Those are all incredibly important to me. I just think that disability is equally important to those things. Yeah, I, I agree. Do you know much about... I Actually, I'm asking because I don't know much about this organization, but do you know anything about uh, Is This Venue Accessible, that website? I've never heard of that, but, you know... I would I would love to know more about that. Yeah, and I, I'm actually like I like seen a link about it once, and I didn't really follow up. And I guess they have a list of venues on there that are accessible. Um, and I was just wondering if you knew anything about it. I personally don't, other than that it exists. Yeah, you know what? Like the really weird part is, uh, like usually when I go to a show, I'm the only dude in a wheelchair there, mm-hmm. and. When I was younger, I was kind of like, if I saw another dude, I was like, whoa, dude, you're stepping out my turf. Like, I'm the crippled hardcore guy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's probably a great resource. You know, sadly, when I uh, came up to the vineyard space in Rochester and when I first met you, I would venture to say that probably your venue was the most accessible out of all of them. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad that we can provide that. I, I mean, I have... I have other friends that are in wheelchairs as well, and it's been cool to be able to invite them out to a show or any kind of event there. But I just know as a performer, just being able to, like, you know, have grab rails to piss and not be worried about if I'm going to fall over and, like, piss all over myself before a show was, was great. Yeah, I, w- I would imagine that'd be a, a positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just... Like, walking out on stage and then just piss all over my left leg. And I'm like, so who wants to hear stories from my book? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can get to that. Let's, uh, you mentioned performing. Um, You said that you used to be in hardcore bands, but you didn't tell the listeners about what your performing now entails. And just explain that a little bit further. So... Often people tell me, well, it took me seven years to write the Zen of Beer Coming. And most of that is because I just suck at writing. <laughs> um, or I just really hate the process of, of writing. It's really brutal for me. And throughout that entire process, people would often ask me, why do you think anyone will want to read your book? And I would always just kind of say, well, I, I believe in my story enough. And I knew that I'm a much stronger speaker than I am a writer. I think that I'm a, I'm a proficient writer, but I think that I really excel when I'm able to use my voice 
and to just tell stories. And so I knew that that was really the way to really get people behind my book is when I would go out and uh, I knew that doing readings is dumb because, you know, if you're an author and you do readings, I think that you're really full of yourself because generally, unless, like, you're a really big author, nobody wants to hear you read your own book. Mm -hmm. So... I knew that I, I had to figure out a way to, to tell my story without, you know, just reading my book because I figured if people wanted to read my book, they would just read my book. So if they're coming out to see me and they're paying money, then I should be giving them something, you know, different than, than what they can experience with just the book. So a huge influence of mine since I was a teenager was Henry Rollins of Black Flag mm -hmm. and... He writes books as well, but he's really an amazing storyteller, and uh, I've been doing storytelling probably for the last five years or so, and so what I do is I'll tell stories from my life, and I'll, and I'll throw in a couple from the book, but mostly like I'm just sharing stories of my life, whether that's like crazy bathroom accidents or, <laughs> or experiences at shows or... My experience with uh, being a part of evangelical Christianity for a good portion of my life and dealing with faith healers. So, I, so when I get on stage, I really look to give people an experience of otherness and at the same time a a camaraderie. Hmm. Have uh, people assumed that what you're doing is more in the vein of stand-up comedy? Or do people get it that it's just storytelling? You know, unfortunately, like with my last book tour, you know, I really wanted to do house show tours, and when I partnered up with the record label, that was kind of the idea that I pitched at first, and then somehow or another, it turned into getting me booked at bars. Mm -hmm. And so, I knew that if I, a lot of my story does have a lot of struggle in it. I'm sure you've read the book. I mean, there's... Yeah. There's some pretty heartbreaking stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, um, it's also paired with a lot of like really light, funny things. And uh, so, I remember specifically being at a jazz bar in Chicago on my last book tour on a Wednesday, getting up on stage and being like, "Okay, this is gonna bomb." <laughs> so, I kind of had to switch it up immediately to doing more of a stand-up routine. So. Sometimes I get misconstrued as a stand-up routine, but I think that some people do get it as, like, you know, I'm not a stand-up comic, first of all, I'm really bad at standing up as <laughs> as a crippled brother. <laughs> I actually, but a side note. I, I definitely get, get a lot of, of people saying, like, you know, you'd be a lot better stand-up if you didn't tell so many sad stories. <laughs> Actually, I have a friend with muscular dystrophy who's been talking about wanting to do stand-up just because he thinks it would be hilarious for him to be a, a stand-up comedian. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I think that's probably the, one of the most frustrating things about being a brother of the crippled persuasion is that people don't allow it to be funny at times. <laughs> because it can be very funny. And, you know, um, I've dabbled in 
in the stand-up arena a lot since I was a teenager. For a while, I kind of thought about going that route completely. I, I've been uh, writing a few one-man shows over the years. Um, so, you know, it's a hard road, but if he's, if he's got the gift of the gab, you know, just the fact that he has a non-normative body is going to grab the audience to a certain extent. So, you know, I would say go for it. Yeah, I, I hope he does. Uh, he's he's a pretty funny guy. Uh, so have so you you mentioned that you have you have actually done done your storytelling in a more of a comedy club setting. Yeah, and that um, has that gone has that gone well? Because I can think of comedians that to me I don't think uh, like Mike Mike Birbiglia is does stand up, but I just think of him as more of a storyteller type of a type of a, a thing. Yeah, actually, he's kind of one of my biggest influences, and I often get get compared to him or uh, Louis C.K., mm-hmm. which it's mind-boggling that, that people compare those two to me because they're just so good at what they do. Yeah. Um, and very different. Very different. You know, I think sometimes it's gone very well. One of one of the things that I'm very good at is kind of just going on on the fly it like and like immediately knowing that what I have planned is gonna bomb and just go for it. Also, um, after I left Rochester on my last book tour when I played at Vineyard, we had a show in Brooklyn and then we had like a five day gap between Brooklyn and the last show, like the like or, or we had like a three day gap between Brooklyn and a show in Baltimore. So we stayed like two days in Connecticut. And me being who I am, I was like, man, I can't just sit here for two days. So I actually jumped on open mics in like these really crappy bars in Bolton, Colorado. Mm. No, not Bolton, Colorado, Bolton, Connecticut. And uh, that was rough. But sometimes when I'm in rough situations, I just hope that somebody heckles me. <laughs> so, for instance, I got heckled at the at the second show of the tour at that jazz club in Chicago, and I was telling a story about being on a date with a woman who uh, who was like trying to convince me to take on her sexually transmitted disease, <laughs> like through guilt. It was it, it, it was odd. It's it's probably going to be somewhere in my book. <laughs> um, and in, in my set, I kind of jump into this, like, this conversation I have with myself in my head. Of this, this woman that I was on the date with was like, listen, if, if, if you don't accept my STD, that's like me not accepting you for your cerebral palsy. <laughs> and during the set, I kind of go... Well, I don't feel like that's the same because you can't catch my cerebral palsy, but I'll have your STD forever, and then I'll be double crippled. And then this guy who had been heckling me like two other times during my set yelled out, worth it. And so that, because I'm pretty quick on my palsied feet, I said, really, sir? Because... You definitely seem like you got the STD thing down, but you don't look palsied at all. And immediately the whole crowd just went, ooh, and then 
that dude showed up for the rest of, of my set. And actually, two people came up to me and they were like, I'm buying your book just because you burned that guy so bad. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think that what I do can work really well if people know what they're coming for. If people are coming there specifically for stand-up, they're probably going to be really caught off guard by me. And so that's why um, I really try to do a lot of DIY tours and house show tours where it's more of an intimate setting where people can kind of let their guard down. And and I can tell stories of heartbreak, but also I can tell stories with a lot of levity. Mm-hmm. Cool. So you mentioned you have another book in the works, so what can you tell me about that? You know, I can't really tell you a whole, a whole lot. Um, unfortunately, I'm dealing with some complications. First book, and so I really don't know what the future of, of this bit of beard trimming is going to be currently, and that dramatically affects this next book, because... If things go really badly, I might have to rewrite the Zen of Beer Trimming merged with this book that I got working in my head. I'm going to tell you that um, one of the things that people tell me when they read the Zen of Beer Trimming is they're just like, it's just so brutal. <laughs> and uh, this this next book that I, that I hope to write is going to be even more brutal, but I, but I really hope that people are equally as touched by it as they were the Zen of Beer Trimming. I think probably one of the coolest things that happens is, is you know, every every so often I'll just get kind of like a random Facebook message from someone that just read the book and they just say, like, you know, this book means a lot to me and uh, I, I, I didn't expect it to mean so much to me and I want to thank you for writing it. And, and whenever I read those messages, I'm kind of thinking, Man, wait till you wait till you read the next book. Cool, awesome. So, will it be in the same style? Is that? Is, is yeah, you know, um, a lot of people have uh, suggested to me to to like different ways in which I could write, and I feel like I'm not as good of as good of a writer as people like to believe that I am, and I'm just really good at telling my own story, and that's because I've honed that skill out of survival as a person who's kind of cast in a label of other, as a person with disability, I learned really quickly that if that if I don't tell my own story, that somebody else does. Mm. And so I'm just really good at telling my own story. And, you know, I I like the raw, like, honesty that that you have to bring when, when writing a memoir about your own life. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you had mentioned your past interactions with evangelical Christianity. So I just want to ask, how does faith impact your your current writing and your current projects? You know, I, I always like to quote um, one of my favorite songs by a band called Me Without You mm-hmm. um, that says that the glass can only spill what it contains. And, you know, I can't separate my faith from who I am. And so, I'm I'm not an evangelical anymore. I'm I'm uh, wholeheartedly still a Christian. I'm just not an evangelical, which makes things uh, very complicated for most American Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote an introduction to my book to um, 
kind of just let people know that like there's there's no separating faith from my story, but I don't really write about faith in this hopes of you know somebody becoming a Christian because I think that that's I think art with ulterior motives always sucks, mm-hmm. and so I just write about God as I know in in the moment and. A lot of my writing, I feel like I, I talk a lot about the abstractness of of the God I know, and I more talk about the people that represent God in, in the ethos. So I don't so much write about God as I write about people's relationship with God and how that forms them as people. Mm-hmm. So, I I would probably say that I write a lot about my faith, but I'm and I don't know if people can necessarily like you know say that I I write about faith because I write about my own faith, but I write a lot about kind of Christian culture that I've ha- haven't really been a part of uh, since I stopped pastoring back in 2010. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of weirdness in Christian culture that is interesting to talk about. Yeah, you know, um, I'm not really into, like, bashing Christian culture, but I am into, like, critiquing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think sometimes the line gets pretty fine. But I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian anarchist, so one of the things that I kind of find in the tension of things is I'm always looking to, to separate... Christendom from Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think Christendom, which is essentially like you know the dominant structure, the dominant institution of like Christianity as we know it, is probably the worst thing that ever happened to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when when we read the Hebrew scriptures and and we read the the Christian scriptures, the New Testament, you kind of see these overarching themes throughout the entire canon, which is really the religion of of creation and the and the religion of empire. And for me, I just have very little interest in a religion of empire, mm-hmm. and I'm always trying to figure out what a religion of creation looks like. Very cool. Now, you use the the phrase critiquing culture, and so tell me about your new podcast. My new podcast, uh, I partner with indie electro-pop musician uh, James Rawson, called the Vultures Like Me podcast. Uh, It's a podcast where we scavenge through pop culture and we are tearing up today's trends. I've always been really, like, I I jumped onto podcasting essentially as soon as I got my first iTunes account. Uh, I was just like, that was the first thing I did. And um, I always wanted to do one. And I kind of did one through YouTube about disability liberation called Cerebral Conversations, hmm. which, is, which is still up on my YouTube YouTube channel. Uh, I think we did like 26 episodes. Okay, cool. I'm gonna. Uh, uh, is, <laughs> um, it, is it cool if I link to those in the show notes? <coughs> yeah, awesome. yeah. Um, you know, that's what you're gonna see. Uh, see the camera is 
in his various various stations of life, both both bearded and, and not bearded. <laughs> so, anyways, I was I have been working with uh, James Rawson for about eight or nine months, and one of the things that we talked about is possibly doing a podcast together, and uh, we're both really into, like, pop culture and, and uh, kind of, you know, really analyzing how things are connected, and th- there's a couple uh, pop culture casts that I really like. One in particular is from the Whole Group Christianity Network, and uh, author Christian Pyatt, uh, does a really great podcast through them called the Homebrew Christianity Pop Culture Cast, and so I knew that I wanted to do a podcast, and but we really wanted to, we really wanted to like delve in deep to like how pop culture connects to the more heavier things go- going on in society. So we just released our first episode on the social media effect where we talked about two women's experiences with leaving social media and also one model who just decided to stop all the fronting and started like Instagramming her everyday life which included her waxing her lips and getting her bowel uh, irrigated to treat her irritable bowel syndrome um and then, so we release a podcast every other Thursday. Um, we have a few in the can. We just recorded episode four, like, at midnight last night. Nice. And then on the weeks that we don't have podcasts, we do what's called our, our Fresh Meat Recommendations of the Week, where James and I recommend something that we're into. So with this first one, I recommended a show on Netflix, which is a murder mystery set in Wyoming called Longmire. James and I also talked about the new Star Wars that came out. So, yeah, you can check that out by just uh, going on um, com, or you can check us out on Facebook or Twitter. We actually just hit 200 subscribers today, which uh, we've, we've only done one full episode, so I'm really stoked about that. That's awesome. Yeah. Evidently, the chicks dig it. <laughs> oh, so I wanted to ask you about this when we were talking about your book, but I can edit it and put this there, or I can just leave it here. We'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, yeah. But we're recording this. It's Thursday, uh, February eleventh. This is, this will be coming out in a, a couple weeks because I've got some other interviews that are that are going to come first. But we both just watched Monday Night Raw on. Oh no! Yeah. Uh, this past Monday. And within your book, you, or I think, yeah, you definitely talk about Daniel Bryan in your book. Am I correct? Am I, or am I just putting things together? I don't know if I mentioned Daniel Bryan in the book, but I definitely mentioned watching pro wrestling with my neighbor Ron. Yeah, I definitely remember that, and I, I think you may have mentioned him, but I, it's, it's been too long since I've read the book. Yeah, and I can't remember. But either way. Um, you and I have had conversations about him, so you know, tell me about how he uh, his story influenced and impacted your life. Oh man, dude, I might cry. Like seriously. <laughs> so man, this is gonna be hard because I, because I've actually been uh, writing a blog post about this very topic 
since since after his retirement speech on Monday, and I keep crying throughout it, and I have to stop. So I'm, so I'm hoping to like finish it by tomorrow. <laughs> I guess I should start off with this: is is a lot of people get really freaked out when they hear that I'm into pro wrestling, mm-hmm. and and I've actually, actually had people be like, "Yeah, but you're smart." <laughs> And I've loved it since I was a little kid. And my first memory is growing up next to my mom when I was about two or so. And a current, the news show, A Current Affair, just got over. And then uh, Superstars came on. And I don't really remember what was on the TV, but I remember that there was wrestling. And then the next memory I really have of wrestling is... Uh, when I was three, my parents took me to a house show in Rockford for my birthday. And I remember seeing The Undertaker's uh, and Paul Bear's uh, funeral parlor. But the thing that I remember the most is Hulk Hogan coming out. And Hulk Hogan was my favorite. And I remember he was carrying the American flag, and it was him versus Sergeant Slaughter. And this was during like the height of Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. And I was like up like, you know, way far back, but I swear to you that Hulk Hogan looked directly at me. <laughs> uh, I I remember I got one of those awesome uh Jim Duggan foam two by fours. That's awesome. Yeah. And from then on I, you know, I just I had a pretty hard time growing up, but some of the best memories I had were involving wrestling. And, uh, you know, I remember you know, having these epic Iron Man matches with my brothers on the bunk beds, and having Royal Rumble Battle Royals with all our stuffed animals, and watching Monday Night Raw. But wrestling has meant a lot to me because it taught me a lot of things. I was a latchkey kid. I really didn't have a dad in my life, and my mom worked a lot. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot about like good and evil and perseverance all through wrestling. And uh, I was actually a very soft-spoken kid and you know, uh, being a kid with disability can be very hard. And So I was soft-spoken and on top of that I actually stuttered really bad. Any sort of long vowel I couldn't do, and our next door neighbor's name was Andrew, so I just remember every time I wanted to say Andrew, I would just be like, hey, 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 Andrew, and I felt so ostracized, but I remember watching wrestling and really watching my favorite wrestlers talk on the microphone taught me how to communicate, and it taught me how to how to slow things down because some of the best um, talkers in pro wrestling really slowed things down with a cadence, which taught me to slow down. Because one of the problems that I had is that I was having so much going on in my head that my tongue just couldn't keep up with like what was going on. And so I learned to slow down, but also I learned how to, how to project my voice. Mm-hmm. And then I learned the importance of inflection. And also on top of that, um, I grew up during 
the most popular time in all of American pro wrestling during the late 90s. So when all the kids on the playground were talking about wrestling, that gave me an in to talk to other kids, and that kind of dismantled a bit of that fear dynamic that, that a lot of the kids had about me. And I actually had my first like real friend in fifth grade. It was all centered around wrestling because we all because we would always talk about Rey Mysterio. And after I left high school, you know, I just kind of fell out of wrestling because I didn't have cable. And um, and then while I was pastoring, I was staying the night at uh, one of our parishioners' house, and he had cable. And I ended up turning on, uh, like, the first season of WWE's, like, developmental league show called NXT. Mm-hmm. And there was this little scrawny dude named the American Dragon, Daniel Bryan. And Daniel Bryan, I recognized as Bryan Danielson, who I had only seen pictures of in, like, wrestling magazines that I found in the trash and, like, obscure videos on the internet um, in high school. He was, like, this indie wrestling legend, and he was known for this hard Japanese style of wrestling. And I thought to myself, I was like, oh, good for him. Like, he made it to WWE. And, like, uh, you know, he's this scrawny, like, pale dude who, like, doesn't look like he belongs, you know, in the... place where like everyone is jacked huge mm-hmm. and then um and then like flash forward a, a couple years later i have to quit my pastoring job in, in upstate new york and i move into my very first apartment that i'm talking to you in here in illinois and i start to watch wrestling with my neighbor who also happens to have a cerebral palsy his name is ron jackson and we are are watching Monday Night Raw, and it's the, really like the first time I've watched Monday Night Raw in a couple of years, and I and I see Daniel Bryan again, I'm like, alright, he's still here, way to go! And I just really fell in love with who he was. He has this uh, enigmatic, endearing passion, you know, because he would just wrestle with this reckless abandon that, that you could feel... When I would watch Daniel Bryan wrestle, I would get the same kind of goosebumps that I would get when I would watch Henry Rollins perform in Black Flag. Mm-hmm. It, it was that same kind of just like raw passion because he would just like, you know, he would just like run across the ring and like and, and like knee someone in the face, and then he would run across the other corner and do it, and then he would just dive like out of the ring in between the ropes and like hit him like a torpedo and. Around that time is also when I decided to walk from my apartment here in Rockford, Illinois, to Evanston, Illinois. Um, it was a walk about 75 miles, and I used my crutches and wheelchair. And, it, and it, it, it was around that time that Daniel Bryan kind of first started getting this weird little groundswell, you know, being someone special. And then a year later... He wins his first major title, and it was really weird because he just starts pointing his hands up in the air and yelling yes over and over and over, and it was almost annoying. And then as the months go on, you know, he he doesn't get this big title shot, and then 
everyone wants him to have it though. And every time he would come out, the whole crowd would 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 point their hands in the air and chant yes over and over. And I'm sure you remember this just as well as I do. They were in Seattle, mm-hmm. and they were getting ready to kind of like gear up for uh, that year's WrestleMania, and it was like this same old match that they've done every single year. It was it, it was John Cena, who's this, who's your prototypical wrestler. I'm not saying that he's a bad guy. It's just you know he's he's your prototypical wrestler. And this other guy named Randy Orton, who's a prototypical wrestler, and they're gearing up. They're like, these are the people that are going to like be for the title. And they had all the wrestlers like in the ring on stage and talking about important this matches. And and they're in Seattle, which is Daniel Bryan's kind of hometown. And the whole crowd just starts chanting yes over and over, and they completely hijack hijack the whole thing. And for a year, it felt like wrestling fans like me, we just like had this this friend in the ring that we were all rooting for. Because we all know that wrestling is, is predetermined, but we knew that this guy was special. So I think we all figured, hey, if we just keep cheering on this guy, eventually like they just have to do what we want them to do, right? Yeah. And, you know, then it kind of comes... To this thing where there's this big event called the Royal Rumble, which actually is probably my favorite pay-per-view. It's always been my favorite pay-per-view since I was a kid. And the thing is, is that it's like 30 people in the ring, and then they all get thrown over the top rope. And the last person in the ring gets to fight for the title at WrestleMania. So we're all waiting for Daniel Bryan to, to come in. And then... Uh, the 30th person gets in the ring, and Daniel Bryan is nowhere to be seen. It's actually uh, Rey Mysterio, who was a guy that I really liked since I was a kid. And the they were in Philadelphia, right? I think they were in Philadelphia. Yeah, they were. They were. Yeah, and so then the whole Wait, crowd is just like, no, we don't want this. And they just start booing. And then a former full-time wrestler who is now an actor who is you know, in Guardians of the Galaxy, Dave Batista ends up winning. And he was saying, like, supposed to be the good guy, and everyone just boos. And somehow, it ends up that Daniel Bryan is going to wrestle at WrestleMania. But he has to beat the literal COO of the company first, and then that grants him the chance to be in the match with Randy Orton and Dave Batista, So he ends up winning that match, and then the main event happens. And I don't know what happened, but I just got, like, morphed into this world where I was this... I was that three-year-old boy uh, sitting in the Rockford Metro Center all over again because Ron and I were sitting next to each other, and when he snapped on his, like, finishing move uh, called the Yes Lock, on, on Dave Batista, I just start yelling. I start yelling, you better tap! You better tap, you tribal tattoo tight jeans wearing motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> and I just felt it. And then to watch Dave Batista's tap was just incredible. And 
and Ron and I just started choking up, and it was the weirdest thing. I have, I have never felt that way about wrestling since I was a really little kid. And then I think one of the things about Daniel Bryan that is resonates with me so deeply is that, like my story, my story is one of a lot of struggle and a lot of triumph, but there's a lot of heartbreak. So he ends up winning the title and then goes on his honeymoon. And while on his honeymoon, he finds out that his dad died. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, I feel like it was the same week, he started having weakness in his left side and found out that he needed to have neck surgery. And he had to vacate the title. And it was heartbreaking because we all felt what he felt. Mm. Um, you know, he was this guy that wasn't supposed to make it. And there was actually rumors that, like, the WWE, like, the company itself did not want him to be the most popular wrestler. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he had a long, scraggly beard. He was too short. And he was too pale. And, you know, and he, and he was vegan and weird. And he almost quit wrestling to join the Peace Corps. And now this friend that we had in the ring, his dad died, and he might never wrestle again. And then about six months later, he comes back, and he ends up winning a like lesser title, and, and we're all excited because he's back. And a couple weeks after that, he gets a concussion. And then he was gone for a year, and we were kind of just waiting for our friend. And during this time, when I first saw him win the title, I remember thinking, he finally did it. And then I remember thinking, I have to finish this book. Mm. I have to finish this book. And uh, so I just worked on this book for about seven years, and then... About a year and a half ago, my life hit sort of a sort of a full collapse of my support system as I knew it had kind of fallen to pieces and living in systemic poverty had kind of you know just put me in a really bad spot. I was denied going to community college for like the sixth year in a row mm. because I couldn't afford the six dollars a day to get bus fare. I had lost my a lot of my like community of of friends and support system. A lot of other things kind of happened and I I was dealing with just a lot and then I was dealing with like uh, intrusive suicidal thoughts for about a month. Mm. And then my girlfriend at the time, which you know, probably has been the most impactful relationship of my life to date. Asked for space on our one-year anniversary. And that's when I decided to uh, check into a hospital because I knew I knew that stuff was bad. I was, I was in so much turmoil that I hadn't, like, showered in two weeks because I was, I was afraid of the razor blade that I kept in my shower. And so I went to a hospital for eight days, and then I got discharged prematurely because I didn't have 
anything but a state medical card, and they didn't want to keep me any longer. So they literally just pulled me in a van and sent me back home. Mm. And then that night, my uh, girlfriend at the time decided to end the relationship. And the last thing she ever said to me was, was, I love you so, so much, which was what she always said before we would say goodnight. And I lost it. And then I spent a week at my friend's house playing PlayStation, working out, crying, and eating ice cream sandwiches. And then I got on a plane, and I went to Charlottesville, Virginia, to look to kind of start my life over because the there just aren't a lot of resources here in, in uh, Rockford, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And so I had a fellow Christian anarchist friend of mine kind of invite me to stay with his family, but then they decided once I got there that, you know, this whole system, like, this whole systemic poverty thing is kind of a lot, <laughs> and we don't know if we're set up to kind of fix it either, so I ended up coming back to Rockford, and when I got off the plane, I had to pass the last place that I kissed my ex-girlfriend, and I kind of knew, like, that it was, that it was make or break time for me. And I knew that I had to finish this book. Before I left from Charlottesville, I did a storytelling event, and someone approached me who works with a publisher and asked me if I'd ever thought about publishing a book. So I gave her my card, and she read my blog while I was in Virginia. And then um, when I got back, I signed my publishing my very first publishing deal about two months later. And while I was in Virginia, I just wrote essentially half, like the second half of the Zen of Beer Trimming. And the publisher of the Zen of Beer Trimming was in such a rush to kind of get me under contract that they actually had me sign the deal without the book being finished. Mm. And uh, so I had like about two weeks to finish it. And it was brutal because I had to write about some of the darkest times of my life and I just didn't know if I could do it. And so sometimes when I would just be really overwhelmed, I would actually go on YouTube and I would just watch old Daniel Bryan matches. And then I and then I finished the book. I think I finished it on... I want to say that I finished it like on November 27th of 2014. Okay. And then it was released March 1st of 2015, but when I, when I finished the Zen of Beer Trimming, which is a book, you know, that I've been working on for the last seven years of my life, and it was kind of, when everything fell apart, I always thought, well, I still have the book, like, when I write the book, you know, stuff's going to be better, and when I finished that book, it was weird, because the only thing that I could do is bawl my eyes out and scream yes. So, for about the last year, everyone has been kind of waiting for Daniel Bryan to come back, and he keeps getting cleared by all of these doctors that he sees, but he isn't getting cleared by WWE's uh, corporate doctors, and we're kind of just all waiting, and, you know, this year's WrestleMania is about two months away, so we're just kind of waiting for Daniel Bryan to come back, and then Monday afternoon, he tweets out effective immediately that he's retiring due to injuries. Mm-hmm. 
And this week's Raw was in Seattle. He, at the end of the show, comes in the ring, and his hair is cut, and his beard is cut down, and uh, the entire crowd is just chanting yes. And he explains that, you know, he had a recent brain scan, and uh, that his brain is not in a good place to be putting himself at risk for more concussions. But really, the great thing is that he starts talking about first of, you know, why he cut his hair and why he cut his beard. And, and he's such a humble guy. You know, he, he does a lot of charity work, but, like, he would never tweet about it. He would never draw attention to it. He just says, I'm just going to give one shameless plug. I cut my hair and, and donated it to a charity that makes wigs for kids who are going through through radiation. Mm-hmm. And then he said, and I had to cut my beard just because I look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, just says, you know, that he, he can't wrestle anymore, but he starts talking about all of the things that he's really thankful for. And, you know, he says, like, I'm really thankful that I just got to, like, Take in this last moment with you all, chanting yes, and just closing my eyes and and feeling that moment. And uh, also, he's like, and I'm really going to miss diving through these ropes. And then, like, at this point, I'm like bawling my eyes. Me too. I'm gonna miss that too. But then, like, he like throws out the big guns, and he starts talking about his dad, and he points to a fan in the crowd and says, "My dad was sitting right there when you guys hijacked the show, and you let him know that I was." really good and and he was like that was the last time my dad got to see me wrestle hmm. and so you know now his uh, career is over and I think in 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 some sort of ways we we are dealing with a similar existential crisis <laughs> um, that that uh, Jesus' disciples did after his death not to you know, uh, make this thing more melodramatic than what it is, but I think that um, sometimes a good story can can change people's lives. And Daniel Bryan lived a really great story as a wrestler, and I think he may go down as one of the most important wrestlers in his generation but more importantly he he's probably not going to go down as the greatest wrestler of all time but what is more important is I think that he's probably going to go down as one of the greatest human beings to be a wrestler mm-hmm. and I know that I probably wouldn't have finished the Zena beer trimming without that kind of inspiration. 
And I probably wouldn't have so much joy and hope in in the season that I'm in where, you know, stuff with the book isn't going so well. You know, because I'm, I'm, I'm questioning the more, like, the most core parts of who I am in, in this season of uncertainty. And it's kind of because of the story that is just some pro wrestler named Daniel Bryan that when I'm asked if there's, if there's still hope, I don't think that there's any more appropriate answer than to scream yes. I've been, I've been looking for opportunities to for wrestling to br- be brought up on, on this podcast, and so this was uh, having you on was the perfect opportunity. <laughs> it, yeah, because of how it relates, you know, you tie it in with your story, and yeah, it, it was uh, I, you know, I, I was getting teary eyed listening to you tell Daniel Bryan's story. <laughs> so. Yeah, like you know, like the really sad thing is, like I'm just like I wish I could just give him a copy of the book and just be like you mean everything like like not that you're the most important person on the planet but like you're a really good dude and I'm like please don't wrestle anymore because we want you to be healthy yeah for sure as, as much as it sucks yeah. to not see him like I'd rather see him be healthy yeah cause wasn't it awesome when he like was like my wife and I are planning to make babies <laughs> And then, like, the entire crowd chanted yes, and then he goes, that's what my wife says every <laughs> night. And then the crowd just starts chanting, that's what she said. <laughs> it, it legitimately may have been one of the, it's like one of the best wrestling promos of all time. Yeah, you know, um, my personal favorite ha- uh, was the late, great Dusty Rhodes, Hard Time. No respect! No honor. There is no honor among thieves in the first place. He put hard times on Dusty Rhodes and his family. You don't know what hard times are, Daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work. They got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years. 30 years, they give him a watch, kick him in the butt, and say, hey, a computer took your place, daddy. That's hard time. That's hard time. And Rick Flair, you put hard times on this country by taking Dusty Rhodes out. That's hard time. And we all had hard times together. I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. And there were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other one's right here. 
Meet your boy Ric Flair. The world's heavyweight title belongs to these people. I'm going to reach out right now. I want you at home to know my hand is touching your hand for this gathering of the biggest body of people in this country, in this universe, all over the world. Now, reach it out because the love that was given me in this time, I will repay you now because I will be the next world's heavyweight champion on this hard time blues. Dusty Rhodes Tour 85 and Ric Flair, Nature Boy. Let me leave you with this. One way to hurt Ric Flair is to take what he cherishes more than anything in the world. That's the world's heavyweight title. I'm gonna take it, I've been there twice. This time when I take it, Daddy, I'm gonna take it for you. Let's gather for it. Don't let me down now, cause I came back for you, for that man up there that died 10, 12 years ago and never got the opportunity to see a real wolf champion. And I'm proud of you, thank God I have you. And I love you. Love you! But I think that's just gonna be seared in the most childlike, wondrous places of my heart forever. And like, that's the beauty about what, what wrestling, what pro wrestling can do, you know? Um, people make fun of it a lot, but I often argue about that it's, it can be a really awesome medium for teaching people about life, but also I think that one could make the argument that wrestling can be a really great medium for people to accept change and to wrestling could be a very awesome catalyst for people to change their preconceived notions about people and ideas because there has been a long-standing history of of sexism and racism and homophobia within the mythos of pro wrestling but also at times it's been very progressive mm -hmm. and I think sometimes wrestling can tell really great stories and I think Daniel Bryan's a really great story uh, my other favorite dude is uh, CM Punk you know and, and he was a guy that just kind of fought against the status quo and fought against corporate ideals that, that that he felt were unfair and he kind of just like walked away from the business on his own terms and then he, he like fought them and sued them and so that has also inspired me as I'm dealing with all sorts of complications in my personal life like just just to keep fighting you know and granted um, I don't have the same attachment that I have to CM Punk and the new Daniel Bryan I feel like I feel like Daniel Bryan is is my friend, but CM Punk is the cool guy at the shows when I was in high school that I wish thought that I was cool, but I think he's really cool. That's what I feel about CM Punk. Yeah, I I didn't start. I mean, I was I was into wrestling as a kid, but didn't get into it again until uh, the build up to WrestleMania 30. 
So Daniel Bryan was my favorite guy, and I kind of missed out on the, the whole CM Punk thing, unfortunately. I mean, I've been going back and watching some stuff on the network, but... Oh, yeah. It's, it's uh, not the same, man. Like, the really crazy thing is that I listen to so many wrestling podcasts that I have to routinely, like, delete podcasts because my hard drive on my MacBook gets built up. <laughs> And uh, one of the first wrestling podcasts that I ever stumbled onto was Colt Cabana's Art of Wrestling. Mm -hmm. And um, he's uh, CM Punk's best friend. And so when CM Punk kind of had his big breakout, you know, promo moment that people called the infamous pipe bomb, he uh, was like sitting on stage Indian style and just talking about how, like, the company sucked, and how he's the best in the world, and, you know, that he's just not going to take this anymore. And then he, like, turns to a camera and waves, hi, Colt. <laughs> it was great. And so I got to hear the podcast right after that happened where Colt Cabana is like, so CM Punk said hi to me on uh, national TV. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, man, there's a... Kind of bringing it back. I mean, we talked about we talked about punk rock at the beginning of the interview. I think it's really cool to see how many connections to punk rock there are in wrestling. It's uh, it just seems like there's a lot of people that are into both. Yeah, well, you know, we're we're in a really awesome time culturally where it's really cool to be a nerd. Yeah, where uh, Adam, man, it's great. It's finally our time to shine. <laughs> you know, so it's cool to be into comic books. It's it's kind of cool to be into wrestling if you're in the right crowd. Like, indie wrestling is kind of a big deal now. Yeah. And there's a lot of great space. And, like, that's how, that's how punk rock came to be. Is like, it, you know, it was kind of in these dingy VFWs. I mean, some of the best shows that I've ever been to have been in VFW halls like VFW halls. Mm-hmm. And some of the very best wrestling shows that one can go to are going to be in VFW halls. And, you know, psychologist Abram Maslow has has the hierarchy of needs. And so it kind of starts that the bottom of the hierarchy of needs is, is, is your basic needs like food, shelter, water. And then you have your emotional needs of that you know that you're loved and things like that. And the next step from that is your social needs, and that's a place of belonging. And that's what really great art does, and that's what punk rock can do, is create space. That's what pro wrestling can do. But one of the issues that we're going to run into, just as you asked me earlier, is, is we have to be conscious about using the things that we love to create space. To create sacred space for people to be, so that's why we have to make you know our DIY bases accessible. That's why we have to make our wrestling not sexist and not racist because that's when the best art forms are going to come out. For sure. Uh, have you listened to uh, Damian Abraham's podcast? The from uh, he's the dude from Fucked Up. You've told me about it. You know, I am so afraid of subscribing to another podcast because <laughs> of 
I probably have, I'm not kidding, I probably have like four months of podcasts on my hard drive right now. Wow. Well, <laughs> well, anyway, the reason I ask is because, I mean, he, he talks specifically about like how his guests got into punk. And it's mostly people in bands, but also he's he's had he had Fred Armisen on there, and I know this will inter- interest you. Is two weeks ago he had MVP on there, the wrestler. Yeah. And uh, this past week he had Robbie Brookside on there. Robbie Brookside, he's, he's a trainer at NXT. Yeah, um, he, he's kind of a British chain wrestling legend. Yeah, uh, the the podcast is super cool. He goes super deep on a bunch of old punk bands and stuff. It's it's pretty rad. Yeah. You know who's, like, really into, like, metal? Who? Is, um, Regal. Interesting. That doesn't like, really surprise me. Yeah, like, Regal is really into Iron Maiden. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's great. All right, man. Well, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. But it's been great. It's been great talking to you, first of all, because we hadn't talked at length in a while. I know I didn't talk a whole lot, but... It's always always good chatting with you. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I want to try to figure out a way to get get back up to Rochester and uh, eat a eat a veggie garbage plate. You know, maybe watch a little wrestling. You know, I guess my last words are just. I think a lot of our conversation has been all centered around like be open to new ideas and like new people and new experiences. So like we talked about you know, making our spaces accessible. And we talked about people judging us about wrestling and, and, you know, punk rock and things like that. And I think that the overall thing is be open to these new experiences because when I give lectures, at times I I give lectures about ableism and, and disability liberation on college campuses. And, and one of the things that I always say is that the most important accessibility that I advocate for is the accessibility of your heart and the accessibility of your mind. Because if those things are accessible to me and my experience, then that means that getting a ramp built isn't going to be a problem. Yeah. You know, like, getting into a punk show is not going to be a problem. But until that accessibility happens within you, it's not. So... I know that some people are going, God, they talked about wrestling for like an hour. <laughs> you know, but we weren't talking about wrestling. What we were talking about is we were talking about our lives and what that meant to us. Um, you know, if if uh, you're interested in interacting with me, I'm definitely in a place where where I need I need more friends in my life. I don't have like a like a you know, a Facebook fan page. I'm just a dude. Uh, you can send me a Facebook fan friend request um, at facebook.com slash cjcampbell1986. You can follow me on Twitter. That's at cjlwnbd. Um, I do have a, a Tumblr blog, uh, The Running Search. That's cjcampbell.com or cjcampbell.tumblr.com. The Daniel Bryan post should be up soon. Awesome. Uh, and yeah, uh, check out the Vultures Like Me podcast. We put out a podcast every other Thursday. And, um, yeah, you know, just, I would say, you know, push uh, this podcast. Adam is a pretty cool dude. He puts on great shows at the Vineyard. I really wish that I lived in Rochester. Like, 
all of my favorite people are there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and if you're interested in uh, booking me, yeah, just you can contact me through Facebook and uh, maybe let me in your hardcore band. Awesome, awesome. You know, like I was saying about about wrestling, I uh, I got through like I think I've recorded seven episodes so far, and it hasn't come up once. So all of the people that know me are impressed that I made it this far without <laughs> wrestling. So I think they can deal with the uh, the extended talk in this one. Yeah, well, um, I mean, when I pulled in for our show at Vineyard, what was the very first thing I said to you? You asked me if I'd seen Raw. Yeah, what happened on Raw? <laughs> exactly. Which, and that was that was the week that Kevin Owens premiered, and it was... I know, and I missed it, because I was on tour. Hashtag tour live. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with CJ. He is someone who I definitely would like to have on the show again, because we had a great time. Make sure you check out his book, The Zen of Beard Trimming. And also his podcast, Vultures Like Me. He's doing some really cool stuff, so make sure you check it out. Alright, I do have one correction from this episode. That Royal Rumble that we were talking about, it was not in Philadelphia, it was in Pittsburgh. So, if anyone cares, I just wanted to make sure we get it right. Alright, I think that's all I have for you today. Make sure you check out the things that CJ and I plugged in the episode. And I'll be back next week with another conversation with a friend. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week.